everybody, Julian Charles here of themindrenewed.com, coming to you once again from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. And today I'm delighted to welcome to the programme Dr. Peter Phillips, who is a professor of sociology at Sonoma State University in California, who has particular interests in political sociology and the sociology of media. He was director of Project Censored from 1997 to 2010, which is an organisation promoting truly independent media and journalism for the sake of promoting democracy, and he remains as Project Censored president to this day. Dr Phillips has published very widely in academic journals and in prominent independent media and is a frequent academic and public speaker across the US often addressing media censorship and other socio-political issues. Dr. Phillips, thank you very much indeed for joining us today on The Mind Renewed. Well, thank you very much for having me on, Julian. It's great to be speaking with you. In fact, I'm keen to speak with you because I heard you interviewed by Tony Gosling earlier this summer, around about the time when the... uh, the, the famous, I suppose I should call it infamous, Bohemian Grove summer camp was about to get going. I think it was in July, that, that sort of time. And just in case anyone has not heard of this event, the Bohemian Grove is the name of a massive campground in California where a few thousand very wealthy and influential men, including politicians, uh, members of an elitist men's club called the Bohemian Club, meet each year for fun, frolics and male bonding in the woods and uh, engage in some rather odd rituals. One involving, uh, and if you've not heard this before, please brace yourself, uh, one involving a giant concrete owl, uh, believe it or not, which no doubt we will talk about in due course. And what struck me in that conversation that you had with Tony Gosling was the fact that you had actually done your PhD back in the early 90s on this very subject. So I was really keen to speak with you, not least because I had, as so many have seen Alex Jones's documentary on this subject, and I felt there were perhaps more questions posed by that documentary than answers provided. So I want to ask you about all this as we go along. And as I said to you uh, off air just a minute ago, I I have read a fair amount of your PhD thesis, not all of it, but uh, I have to say it's very enlightening in a number of ways. So we'll we'll get on to that in just a moment. But first, may I ask you about Project Censored and your connection to it? Because it has something of a classic status now, but I doubt that everybody will have heard of this project. So can you tell us what Project Censored is and how you uh, came to be involved with that? Well, Project Censored is a media research group originating at Sonoma State University uh, 39 years ago, now operating in two dozen campuses all over the country and some in Europe, whereby students will research independent news stories and then validate whether or not they were covered in the corporate media. And if they were not, then they're summarized, posted on our website annually, and uh, we select from those the top 25 most important news stories not covered by the corporate media, and then we publish that in an annual book called Censored. So the current book just coming out now is called Censored 2016. It'll be out this month. Uh-huh. And you said, how many universities do you say are involved in this? About 25. It's been up to 40. Not everyone is involved every year, but on any given year, there's between 50 faculty members and two to 300 students involved in the research. Uh-huh. And it's expanding, it's growing. We're, we're expanding what we call Global me- Critical Media Literacy Project. And so we're getting young people to really critically analyze what's going on inside of corporate media today and how much we're not being told. Absolutely. And does that involve other countries as well, did you say? Yeah, we have representatives in South America and Spain uh, and Canada. Mm-hmm. 
And as a matter of interest, do you link up... Germany, too. Aha. Do you link up with any other uh, alternative media outlets at all, or is this an independent research project? Well, we do our own radio show uh, weekly on the Pacifica Network, so um, that's certainly one one place. Uh, Our show is an hour long, and it's on 25 stations around the country. We receive publications from all over independent news media, and then, of course, we monitor online a lot of the major news, independent news, alternative news uh, sources. Mm-hmm. So this radio program, th- that can be accessed on the net, can it, quite easily? Yeah, it's just uh, all our shows are archived at our website, projectcensored.org. Uh-huh. Our show originates on Fridays at 1 o'clock in Berkeley, California, on KPFA radio, so people can listen to it live there. It's on the Internet, and then it replicates itself the following week on 25 other stations. Uh-huh. So if people listen to that, they will hear some of the news that is suppressed by the corporate control scene. Definitely, that's what we try to do. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. Okay, well, let's turn to this so-called Bohemian Grove, um, which, as I said, was the subject of your PhD, which is a relative advantage, sociology of the San Francisco Bohemian Club, University of California, Davis, back in 1994. And just there in that title, there's something of a clarification in that the group is usually referred to as the Bohemian Grove, when in fact it's the Bohemian Club. And I understand the Grove is where they meet um, at least once a year, mostly in in the summer. So uh, perhaps the best place to start would be if you could give us a really good idea of exactly what we're talking about with this terminology here. You know, what is the Grove, the place, and the summer camp, and what is the Bohemian Club that organizes this each year? Well, the San Francisco Bohemian Club is like any elite men's club. It was formed in 1872 in San Francisco, gathering place for newspaper reporters, men of the arts and leisure. Uh, By the 1880s, uh, businessmen started joining in larger numbers, and they quickly, business elites quickly dominated the group. But um, they started camping out in Sonoma County back about that time and had a summer encampment. And the Grove was the end of a train line for lumber that came up this way. Uh, They gradually, they bought up part acres, and they now own 2,000 acres of ancient redwood forest. This is an old-growth redwood forest, trees, you know, 1,500 years old, and have a camp there now every year, last two weeks of July, uh, usually the first weekend in August, and there'll be up to 3,000 people on the weekends and several hundred uh, midweek, and these are men who come from all over the world. Mm -hmm. But would it be right to say they're mostly from the U.S.? Mostly from the U.S., uh, but locally the club has about 2,500 members. Several hundred of them are from other states, so just about every state in the Union has, has a member of the Bohemian Club. And then there's members from, from all over the world. But when they have summer encampment, they can invite a guest. Guests have to be from outside the area. They can't invite a guest from California without special permission. So most of the guests are from all over the country, all over the world, and uh, could be high-level officials in other governments or high-level business people. And they'll gather there and party and um, have the various rituals and ceremonies right. and have time to talk business. Yeah. And so they're going to likely uh, choose people, invite people who are of their, a similar kind of uh, social class as themselves, or at least aspire to be that, that social it's, class. It's, uh, it's, exactly. It's, it's meant to impress. Uh-huh. It's a beautiful place. It's an ancient, uh, you know, 
Grove. There's 120 separate uh, camps where men will stay. They'll have little rustic cabins that they stay in. There's always a central uh, meeting place, uh, outdoor fires, uh, a bar. Lunches served usually at the camps. And, uh, and then there's a general big meeting place for, for dinner and for breakfast uh, every morning in the center of the Grove. Mm-hmm. Well, how do you get to be a member? Obviously, you can be invited by one of the members to go along, but how do you actually become one of the core? You have to be invited. That's right. the only way. Uh-huh. So in that sense, it's a little bit like the Freemasons, is it? Well, I don't know that much about Freemasons, but yeah, you have to be <laughs> invited by members to be in. Um, there's a long waiting list. It can be up to 10 years or more. Wow. Well, they have a kind of an affirmative action admissions program where they admit people in different age categories so they can keep... They try to keep a younger group of men going. You know, if you're in your 20s and your dad gets you on the list um, and you get in, you know, in five or six years, uh, you'll be there a long time. Mm-hmm. That's what, one thing that was impressive to me was, you know, that I didn't realize the, the number of young people, you know, men in their, their 30s, 40s, and 50s that were... Um, at the Grove, in addition to a lot of senior people. And you say about if your dad gets you in, so is there that kind of nepotism is very strong there, is it? Oh, of course, yeah. Yes, yeah. yeah. So w- would there be that same kind of attitude, you know, we get with, say, the Oxford and Cambridge colleges here, you know, so, well, my dad went to such and such college, and I'm going there as well, and he's going to put a word in for me, and that kind of thing. Well, in terms of the Bay Area, the two elite colleges are Stanford and UC Berkeley. And uh, when I was there, uh, you know, there's 2,000 men, they're listening to music, and both the fight songs for football games were played, one for Stanford, one for UC, and half the place would stand up for UC, half would stand up for Stanford, literally. So, right. uh, they, were, they, were very, they were highly represented there. Yeah, yeah. And so generally speaking, the class, if you like, of people who are going there, are, would you say they are the elite of the elite, generally? Yeah, they're upper class, mm-hmm. for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, there's certainly some... I mean, if you play good tuba and they need a tuba player in the band, you could be invited in as a as a musician, and uh, you can avoid having to pay the the entry fees, which would, when I researched it was ten thousand. I understand it's more like fifty thousand now. I'm not sure. Wow. You know, it's quite a bit. But they have members that come in as associate members to be in the band or or manage stage stage plays that sort of thing. So you could. You don't necessarily have to be a, a high-level CEO or highly connected family in terms of the upper class of the Bay Area to, to get in. But you wouldn't become a member, presumably, unless you were... No, you would be a member. Oh, the, okay. the, uh-huh. the, the artists and that are, are, are members, and sometimes and there's some famous actors like Clint Eastwood and uh, uh-huh. Art Linkletter was there for a long time. But uh, mostly it's business people. One out of five of the people there are a major important business leader, uh, either CEO or on the board of directors of one of the top 1,000 corporations in the U.S. Uh, or high government officials. So you know Henry Kissinger, all the all the Republican presidents have, have been members. Some Democrats, Governor Brown was uh, the first Governor Brown, Jerry Brown's dad was a member. So it's mixed, but it's, uh, the dominant party is probably Republican, but. Uh, uh, there's certainly a number of Democrats there as well. Yeah, would you say it's becoming more bipartisan uh, as, as the years go on? I don't know. There's no way of determining. No, okay. Um, and you say that it's only men who can join. I mean, are, are women involved in this at all? No, women are not allowed to join the club. They're not allowed to attend club functions. The San Francisco Clubhouse, which is at Taylor and Post in San Francisco, 
was built in the 30s. There was a clubhouse before that that was built after the Great Fire. But um, it's exclusive for men only. Sometimes women are admitted to go to the art shows uh, and some of the theaters part. But uh, no, you go there, there's a bar, it's a, it's a private men's club, it's for men only, there's no women. And they have fought, in fact, they fought all the way to the Supreme Court in, in, in California to protect their right to have just men in the club. Cool. But they were sued, and they had to hire women to work in the bars in San Francisco, and then they have women that work in certain sections of the Grove, uh, the food service section and the parking lot and the skeet range, and that's it. Women aren't allowed up in the camps or anything, because guys are out there peeing on trees and, and uh, kind of just hanging out, and uh, there's no women, no women allowed. Uh-huh. And each of these little camps, they have valets, don't they, or little servants, and presumably they're men as well, are they? Yeah, they're all men. Yeah, there's uh, the camp I stayed in had two valets that uh, would cook us lunch and uh, basically anything you needed uh, at that time. Uh, I, I liked uh, decaffeinated coffee, and they didn't have any, so the next morning there was decaf coffee there mm-hmm. for me. And are any people of color involved in this these days? Very few. Mm. When I was there, it was a sea of white faces, mostly in the crowds. There were some people of color, uh, some Asian and black, but, but very few. It's, it's really certainly 95, 6, 7 percent white. And what about the security at the campground? I mean, are there massive security guards all the way around? Um, since 9-11, the security is much tighter. Men today have to uh, check in. They get a, an ID badge in order to go in. Before that, it was much more lax. Uh, people could, in fact, walk in the front gate. They would say, are you a member? You could simply say, oh, yes, I am. Pretty straightforward. So there had been a penetrations by media and other folks for, for a number of years. It wasn't like there was any big secret uh, meetings going on that uh, you could infiltrate and find out something strange. But uh, if you go as a guest, you're, I was completely accepted everywhere. I could go into any camps. I had lunch at several, um, and uh, people were very nice. Uh, it's mm-hmm. a lot of pressure to drink, and there's a lot of drinking going on, a lot of really great food and fireside chats and uh, lectures, uh, music. Uh, it, it was, it's quite an impressive arrangement of activities that are going on, mm-hmm. and, and it could be quite um, enticing to uh, want to be a member. Right. Well, you, in your PhD, you, you say that it created a kind of a magical atmosphere with all the music and the lights. And uh, Yeah, it clearly, it clearly is. So, so that reinforces a sense of privilege, a sense of that we're special. And I certainly saw indications of that with men in terms of political orientations. And uh, the one speech I heard uh, there was quite clear that elites needed to uh, rule the world. Right. Well, I want to ask you about that uh, in a few minutes, actually, about how this might connect with what is popularly called the New World Order. But I will ask you about that in a minute. Um, Now, one of the things which comes out of this sort of ethos and attitude is this uh, weaving spiders doctrine, which I understand is, I don't know whether it's spoken about, but it's it's used as a code, isn't it? Weaving spiders come not here from Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream, which I understand. Right, right. That's part of their motto. Yeah, Um, yeah, yeah. The club image is the the owl, the the bohemian owl, the wise owl. But the weaving spiders idea is, is everywhere. And, you know, if, you're, if you went to Grove and 
let's say you were a um, insurance salesman mm-hmm. or you had a big insurance and you tried to convince people to buy insurance, they kick you out. Right. Um, you, you're not allowed to do that. But certainly I heard conversations between high-level people in various corporations, men walking along paths or sitting down saying, well, if GE comes in on the deal, then, 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 you know, then we could probably convince the Japanese to join in. They're obviously talking business. Right. Of course, you get 3,000 men together in one place, and they know each other, and they know what corporations and, and policies are involved, and, and so there's open discussion. Right, so this weaving spiders business then is for the sake of people looking on, is it? They don't actually abide by it. They don't openly promote business activities at the growth. You know, so they don't hold meetings. They don't hold board of directors. You know, there are certain corporations that could have a board of directors meeting because all their members are, are there. Uh, certainly, uh, Bank of America could be close, and so so could uh, Pacific Gas and Electric Company, Hoover Institute. But that's peripheral. It's a big place. People can sit under a tree and have a conversation. Nobody else is listening. So a whole lot of right. discussion goes on. I mean, Ronald Reagan and Nixon sat down under a tree, and this is in their memoirs, that they agreed who was going to run for president when. All right, so there very definitely is this very strong stream of cronyism that does, in fact, get nurtured there. Oh, very much so. And you could, I mean, you could literally, I mean, if you systematically went around, you could meet uh, CEOs of uh, top 100 uh, corporations in the country in a matter of a couple of days. Mm-hmm. So it really is not true to say that it's just a place for the powerful to congregate. It is actually a place of power then in an informal sense. It's clearly a place of power. Hmm. The club does not officially engage in setting policies, making recommendations, that sort of thing. But policy discussions happen there on a regular basis. So the Undersecretary of Defense could come in and give a speech. President of another country could come in and, and give you know, insights into you know, what they think are international issues. Uh, they'll probably have you know, professors addressing uh, global warming, a variety of other things, is all taking place there and available to all the men. And presumably there's also a kind of uh, collective group think at a very high elitist, well, high in inverted commas, elitist level. Um, presumably that's going on as well. So people are chosen to well, do things a, if they think in the right kind of way. That sort of Well, thing. it's certainly a celebration of self, a respect for each other, you know, a general belief that we're significant and important that we're the people that help make the world happen. Mm-hmm. There's varying degrees, and certainly some of the camps are more prestigious than others. Uh, the Mandalay camp, where Kissinger is, um, is, is the only one that I saw that had security. When you got to the camp, uh, a valet would mm-hmm. come out and greet you. You couldn't just walk in. Pretty much all the other camps, um, except Caveman, where Hoover was and, and Bush would hang out, um, I'm sure there's security there. I didn't go there at that time. Of course, the Secret Service is there if they're guarding somebody. But uh, I think that they've gotten much more serious about security uh, after 9-11. You say somewhere in your thesis that uh, the, the club has a history of attracting people you know, who are enamored by sort of social Darwinist ideas. And there's something, you know, what you said there about the superiority that you, you sense with uh, many of them. Do, do you think that's still very much alive today? Classism is very much alive. These are very powerful people. They know they're powerful in many ways. They hang out together, have a good time. The rituals that they have are particularly the cremation of care ceremony is somewhat bizarre 
in that you've got you know a couple three thousand men around a lake uh, in front of a giant concrete owl. It was built back in the twenties and it's uh, weathered and it looks quite unique. Uh, an orchestra playing, and then and then a hundred men come out in monk robes and bishop outfits. They look like the Pope, and have a ceremony called the cremation of care. In other words, they're going to burn up the cares of the world and leave them outside and just enjoy the the friendship and the comradeship of being in the Bohemian Grove together as, as a group of, of men. It's the spirit of Bohemia, they mm, call it. Mm, mm. And, but is, is, uh, that sort of, is that sort of leaving the uh, not only the cares of the world outside, but also, as Nietzsche would have put it, the bungled and botched outside the entrance, as it were? Right. That's the idea. You come here in friendship. You come here in uh, respect for each other. You're gentlemen, meaning that you'll be honest and truthful and, and caring um, and have a good time. You know, on top of that, all kinds of conversations are going to happen. But the Grove is, you know, meant to allow men to uh, let their hair down, so to speak. Uh, they could, you know, drink and eat and frolic and tell stories and tell jokes and, uh, you know, and just kind of carry on uh, and know that it's safe and um, everybody's going to be supportive and, and friendly to you. Mm-hmm. So that kind of behavior allows for kind of an openness that men can share. I, I visited probably 20 or 30 of the camps, and every one you go in there, somebody will greet you. They'll try to give you a drink. Uh, if they've got food there, they'll try to, you know, get, and then they'll inter- they want you to meet everybody there. It's, it's quite open. It's quite friendly. You, you, you suggest that in the PhD that um, there's quite a lot of misunderstanding both inside Bohemian Grove and, of course, outside, uh, where people misunderstanding each other, and you put that down to the exclusivity of the club itself. It sort of breeds this suspicion. Yeah, the club, they used to be quite public about what they were doing. In the 20s, they would announce who their speakers were, who the visitors were. It was all in the San Francisco Chronicle, the other papers in San Francisco. But after the, after the Depression, after the you know, civil unrest in the country, after the general strike in San Francisco in 34, they became much more private. And uh, today, they don't want any press coverage. You know, they get some, but not. It's it's very private. Their guest lists have become unavailable. It used to be that the guest list, who's going to be there, was widely available up to the '60s, and then they started hiding those. And now there's only if you want to know who the guests are, there's only one place to go in the camp, and it's under glass and it's protected. So it's not possible for researchers, sociologists, to get that information anymore. And that, of course, breeds even more suspicion. Yeah, and I have made recommendations that they should um, recognize the rights of human beings to, to have a fair share of, the, of that grove and open it up to the public uh, when they're not there. They should admit women. Um, the lakeside chats and addresses by key public officials should be public. Uh, they should be filmed and transcribed. I mean, there's a lot they could do to open it up, but they don't, and that tends to make people like, oh, what are they doing? They're suspicious. Stories come out. Shock jocks like Alex Jones will, you know, say, oh, they're doing, you know, they're killing babies there. There's a cremation process that's going on, and none of that's true. Right. You know, and if anything... Certainly, you put 3,000 men together, uh, some of those are going to go what they call jump the river and go over and, and partake of um, 
uh, prostitutes or something like that, but it's very rare. I, I would think that's a very small number of people that are doing that. Right. So all those, uh, many of those allegations then about prostitutes and um, homosexual activities and the like—that's h- highly exaggerated. You would say it's overemphasized. I mean, three thousand men in one place with a lot of money. Of course, there's going to be some of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But yeah. Uh, it's not a systematic process. There's one camp that's gay, and they kind of, you know. Well, admit it, but then they don't say too much about it. And uh, if anything, there's certainly a lot of a lot of homophobia there, <laughs> right. misogynistic kinds of orientation to women. I mean, you know, it, it's I heard a lot of jokes like that. I mean, it, it, it's you know, it's a bunch of guys in a fraternity party mm-hmm. who are reminiscing what it was like to be in a, you know in a fraternity when they were Stanford or Cal or or UCLA or you know that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, could you say a little bit more about the cremation of care? Because, of course, when Alex Jones and Mike Hansen went in in 2000, of course, they managed to get some film of that. And I must admit, it does look extremely, extremely weird with that uh, concrete owl there and all these people dressed in these robes. Well, it is, it is kind of, it is a bizarre ceremony. It's around their lake. Um, when I saw the cremation of care ceremony, there was a um, horse-drawn ancient carriage, you know, for carrying coffins, a funeral carriage that they had rented locally from a local guy that owned one. He had these big, beautiful horses that pulled it. And then there's maybe 50 men in uh, monk robes carrying torches that are following in front of and behind this carriage. And the carriage brings out a coffin that is the a skeleton of care. And it's loaded on a gondola and uh, pulled across the lake in front of the owl. And all the men are there with their torches, and there's a high priest who's, saying, we're going to burn care. And then all of a sudden, all of their torches go out. And there's only one light left, and that's one light in front of the owl, one burning torch. And uh, there's a mocking voice from the forest on loudspeakers that say, I'm care, and you, you can't destroy me, and, you know, ha, ha, ha kind of thing. And uh, and then they appeal to the wise owl, they light the torches, and then they're able to light the skeleton on fire, which is burning quite brightly in the middle of the lake. Fireworks go off, and uh, it's quite a, you know, an amazing ceremony. And, and men take it, you know, they're, uh, you're sitting out there, and then some guys are just chuckling and laughing, and some are taking it fairly serious, because the Grove is a serious place for them. They, they have big jobs. And then they can go there and, um, you know, be with some of the same men year after year for, you know, up to two weeks and talk about their prostates and their lives and, and, and everything else that's personal. And also, um, you know, really have a stimulating uh, intellectual exchanges with, with people from all over the world. Yeah, I, was, I suppose really I want to ask you what you think the the meaning of this kind of ritual might be. I mean, maybe one could say that it has different meanings to different people, but nevertheless it's instituted, so somebody somewhere must have had some idea as to what it's supposed to mean. Um, when I turn to Alex Jones's film, of course, The Dark Secrets Inside Bohemian Grove, he heavily suggests that what's going on is occult in a quite a dark sense, um, and he identifies this owl as Moloch. This is the ancient Near Eastern pagan god that children were sacrificed to, and I have to say I've been trying to search for a link between the owl figure and Moloch, and I've failed to find it. I mean, maybe, maybe somebody can, you know. Yeah, no, Alex Jones, he's a sensationalist, uh, mm. did a sneak in. This was before 9-11 when it was pretty easy to do it. 
and film that and then has basically overemphasized and misinterpreted what's going on. Um, yeah, the ceremony, if you see it, looks bizarre. It's nothing occultish and certainly is representative of joining in the club spirit of Bohemia, which is a spirit of men together in friendship and uh, comradeship. Mm -hmm. However, it does have to be said that when listening to the uh, narration that's going on, you said about the voice on the loudspeaker, it does seem to be that the owl represents nature with a capital N. So, I mean, just listening to it, I thought it's at least some element of nature worship in there, which, of course, wouldn't fit with a Judeo-Christian. Worship is the wrong word. Okay. There's no worship going on. The owl is a symbol of wisdom. It's the club symbol. It has been since, you know, the 1880s. It's just representative of themselves collectively. Now, they may be some worshipping of themselves. Right. I guess I would have to say <laughs> that we're pretty special, <laughs> but it's certainly not worship in any sort of religious or deity sense or cult sense. So you would think that any anything that would be construed that way would be just on the level of this performance, really. It's just a dramatic thing that's going on. Right, exactly. Yeah, oh, yeah, okay. yeah. 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 It is so overtly dramatic. And uh, I just wondered why, do you know why they used um, Beethoven's Seventh Symphony, the second movement, uh, such a big part of it? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I just wondered. It just struck me. And I wondered if they did that um, every time. Yeah, um, I don't know. I, the orchestra is there. It's playing music. Uh, I don't know if it's the same. I mean, the ceremony has changed over the years. It's been rewritten. Some of the words are different. Uh, hmm. So I don't know if the music is selectively used every year or not, frankly. Mm -hmm. Something that other people bring up sometimes is that, that of course, uh, the Bushes have this skull and bones connection and others as well, um, and so suggest that maybe the whole thing has a, a history with skull and bones. Is there something to that? Well, Skull and Bones is, a, you know, a fraternity-type organization for elites. Mm -hmm. Those exist as men's clubs and groups all over the world. And mm -hmm. the Bohemian Grove and the, the Bohemian Club is another private men's club that honors the men there and gives them a place of refuge and, and support. It's nothing different than what happens uh, all over the world in, in various men's clubs in different places. Uh -huh. So people who are from different men's clubs with, with different beliefs and systems and the like might find themselves slotting in quite nicely to um, Bohemian Grove because it's that flexible. Is that the idea? It's, there's certainly flexibility there. But there's also, you know, a white, upper-class, elite bias that's present there as well. In other words, we're, we're special people. We get to be treated specially. Um, we have servants to wait on us. And there's an acknowledgment of that to varying degrees, we are the ones that have to take charge in the world. Indeed. And as I said, I wanted to ask you about the New World Order dimension to this. So would you say that generally characterizes the overall feeling of the club, that they should be the rulers of the world in some way? Well, certainly some people there are active in what has been called the New World Order. Certainly high-level government officials, big corporate CEOs and, and interconnectors, especially people who are the big money managers of banks or groups like BlackRock. Some of their board members are there, which control $3.5 trillion worth of wealth. So if you think about wealth in the world, the 1% is, you know, 6 million people that own half the world's wealth. 
But inside of that 1%, there's like one thousandth of 1%, just a few thousand people that manage that wealth for everybody. So really, there's just a, you know, a few thousand people that control $100 trillion worth of wealth in the world. They're the ones deciding where to place it, how to, what to invest in, what kind of returns we want. So that's what we call the financial core, the transnational corporate class. And some of them are clearly there at the Grove, are part of that process, and get to make decisions in, in life impacting you know trillions of dollars worth of wealth in the world and what it's used for and set policies that give direction to the pentagon and nato in terms of protecting that wealth worldwide yeah right so in some ways then alex jones was right to say this is an inner sanctum of the perhaps that's the wrong word Uh, he said it was the inner sanctum of the new world order but it's certainly a window onto that certainly is a window i wouldn't Mm. call them the inner sanctum in that I think certainly the Bilderberger group and some of those are far more policy-oriented. Mm-hmm. And there will be interlinks, presumably, with Bilderberg and Council on Foreign Relations, Trilateral Commission. Definitely. Yeah, yeah, for sure there are. There's, over, there's overlaps with all of those groups. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. So I suppose the last thing that I have to ask you really is, I mean, in a sense, you've begun to answer it, but I want to ask you formally why we should really be bothered about this kind of group. I mean, this isn't just an exercise in curiosity, is it? There are reasons why we should be really quite concerned about groups like these. Well, I think we should be concerned when wealth is so concentrated in the world and great, there's greater inequality happening. We're in danger of, of literally causing humankind to go extinct, either through war or environmental destruction. These are the people making the decisions or moving us in the directions that could possibly be catastrophic for all of us. So we need to know what they're doing. We need to be aware of the decisions that they're making. And we need to appeal to their humanity and for their grandchildren's sake to reverse war and environmental damage that's going on today. They're kind of caught up in this capital system where money has to continue to grow and expand inevitably and and that creates a, a situation whereby they think that they can't stop or they can't stop you know using oil or they can't stop these kinds of activities and i think we need to be really addressing them and saying hey look folks we're endangering humankind in the world and it's time to really address that quite strongly and, and these are the people that, that are hanging out that could make a difference and yet groups like this or groupings like this seem to be working in the opposite direction because they're therefore sealing themselves off from ordinary people and there's this spiral of suspicion and this is all very unhealthy, isn't it? Yeah, I I published a letter of recommendation to the club about uh, four years, five years ago, right after the Occupy movement was happening and just said, hey, you know, you need to be more open and respect the rights of humankind and enjoy a fair share of the wealth you know, to set up uh, live feeds from your from your lectures and your talks. In other words, be public. And if you're going to be leaders in the world, then do it in a public, transparent way. And have you had any kind of positive response from that? No. <laughs> Zero. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, that, I, you know, these are human beings. They, they do have addresses and grandchildren and uh, emails. And as we identify them, and some of the research we published a couple of years ago in the censored book, uh, 2014, we identified the 161 people who are the board of directors of the financial core of the transnational corporate class. It's a very small number of people. They control $25 trillion worth of wealth. 
another thousand of them people like them control a hundred trillion dollars worth of wealth. So, you know, it's very concentrated. There's not that many people involved. Would you say that that very concentration of power and wealth actually gives rise to a fear amongst that class that the ordinary people are, as it were, out to get them? And oh yeah, but they're the white people in in the on the plantation, surrounded by slaves. Yeah. They're very much afraid. They're terrified. When Occupy happened, you know, they got the police state to infiltrate every Occupy group in the country. You know, they're afraid of those kinds of democratic movements. Yeah. So the surveillance state that we see building up uh, around us really is, 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 exactly is, a, is a function of this developing. Exactly. Mm. Yeah, there's no question about that. But the surveillance state, a police state, money for the military, international wars, occupations is is quite quite extensive yes well um i think that covers most of the things that i wanted to ask it's been certainly been very very fascinating um but i think before we end i wanted to ask if there's any way that people can access your work not, obviously not just your phd which i know is available for people to look at but so uh, you've done a lot of project work at project censored over the years yeah my transnational corporate class studies are available at projectcensored.org uh-huh. If you just search in our site, just put TCC, and you'll find my studies. We just finished a third one. It'll be up there in about a month. It's uh, We researched the transnational corporate class and private mercenary companies. Uh-huh. So there's a greater concern. Like G4S, the British company, is the second largest employer in the world now. Wow. And the security company that uh, kind of fell down around your Olympics there. Mm-hmm. But uh, they're huge, and, and there's many others. Blackwater is perhaps one of the more famous ones mm. now under a corporation called Castellus. But these are private mercenary military companies that are in service to the transnational corporate class. Any corporation can buy, it, buy an army today or high-level security. So if there's a delay in terms of NATO or the U.S. doing something, then corporations can hire their own mercenaries. It's astonishing. So that's part of the power, sure. you know, the power elite... Uh, protecting themselves. So some of the very people we've been talking about in this interview are the very people who could actually uh, authorize some of that stuff to happen. Oh, absolutely. Yes, definitely. <laughs> yeah. We've studied the military companies and what's been going on with them, and they've grown massively, and uh, huge amounts of money are involved, and uh, some very um, nasty work can happen from, from, from them. Yes. Yes, it's a frightening... A frightening world we're entering, absolutely, and I thank you very much for the work that you've done, and uh, I shall search, like you've just said there, and I shall put links into the notes so that people can find your work more easily. Oh, great. Thank you very much. Uh, You're absolutely welcome. So, Dr. Phillips, thank you ever so much for joining us. It's been a fascinating conversation and uh, has actually been quite revealing in in a number of ways and clearing up some issues that I think certainly were bugging me. So thank you very much indeed for joining us. Okay, Julian. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, thanks for listening. And just a reminder before we close, however you may be accessing this podcast, uh, don't forget that there's a website to go with it. It's not just a disembodied stream of audio data arriving at your media player of choice. It is, in fact, hosted along with an ever-increasing archive of materials at The Mind Renewed, which you can find on the net at themindrenewed.com. And I know I said this before, I'm going to say it again, it's not mindrenewed.com, it is themindrenewed.com, all one word, of course, except for the .com, Um, themindrenewed.com. And I have to keep saying that because this still does sometimes cause a bit of confusion. 
And for anybody who's new to TMR, as I now tend to call it, let me just say that when you visit the main website, you'll find well over 100 programs from over the last two and a half years or so, mostly interviews, but also some other kinds of episodes, many of which continue to be relevant today. And just a word on that. My vision for TMR was always that it should be a kind of gradually growing resource of reflections on various subjects. I never really wanted it to be um, an alternative news program, which is why it doesn't, and uh, as I say, it was never intended to directly reflect what's going on in mainstream or alternative news at any given moment. This is just me, but I, I just like to take my time, think about things, and then if I think the subject's worthwhile, seek out people who I can dialogue with about it. But as a consequence of that, many of the programmes here at TMR do have lasting value. They're not essentially reactions to what's going on at any given moment, though of course there is a place for that, and there are people who do that really very well, but uh, they are explorations of subjects that I think people can benefit from hearing long after the time when they're originally posted. So the way I think of it is TMR is an archive of resources. Do use that archive, it's there for free. There are several ways to access it via the Topics tab at the main website, via the Interviews and Episodes tabs, via RSS Feed, via TuneIn and Stitcher Radio, and of course iTunes. But if I may, let me recommend the Topics tab, because there you'll find programs listed in categories, which I think is helpful to navigate through the material that's available at the website. And of course, by accessing through the website itself, you'll be able to investigate the show notes, which are linked from each podcast page and in some cases transcripts. And I do spend quite a bit of time on those show notes, um, providing extra information and of course links to the things that are discussed, many of the things that are discussed in the programs. So don't miss out on those. They are very much part and parcel of what I'm doing here. So that's it for this week. I will just quickly ask for a bit of support on social media. Please do share the show. If you use iTunes, please do consider leaving a rating and comment. If you appreciate my efforts here, it's always always great to get that boost to morale um, as every podcaster knows when you see the evidence of support out there so do consider doing that please next week we should be speaking with tom secker of spyculture.com and investigatingterror.com who will be joining us to discuss the legacy of the whole edward snowden affair so as i say that's it for this week thank you for joining me you have been listening to me julian charles of themindrenewed.com and i very much look forward to speaking to you again in the very near future